If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, this debate that's happening around uh, truckers and this uh, vaccination mandate that's to take effect tomorrow, we'll have more on that coming up later in the hour. It's an example of how we definitely have policies in place in this country that are aimed at encouraging vaccination, recognizing the benefits of vaccination. But yes, they do, to varying degrees, target or inconvenience the unvaccinated. But what Quebec has proposed this week seems to go well beyond any other policy that's in place in Canada regarding vaccination. Quebec's premier announced this week plans to levy a tax or a surcharge, a fee, a levy, a fine. Not sure how best to characterize it, uh, but essentially to levy a charge against those who are unvaccinated, adults who do not have a legitimate medical exemption. Uh, this is being billed as almost like a health surcharge, But on the other hand, it doesn't seem that much different than a policy that mandates vaccines and fines those who are not vaccinated. Either way, it's a charge you have to pay. It's a charge that's meant to be punitive. And you'll find yourself in some trouble if you do not pay it. So is this a a legal approach? Is this an ethical approach? Joining us to, to talk more about some of the issues that this uh, policy raises, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Vardit uh, Ravitsky, who is a professor of bioethics at the School of Public Health at the University of Montreal, also a senior lecturer on global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School. Professor Ravitsky, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Do you see this as significantly different than any other vaccine mandate or requirement that, that exists in this country? I do because um, it targets uh, people who are not vaccinated by choice in a way that is closer than before to their right to health care. Now, I'm not saying it directly limits the the right to health care. You know, there have been previously other taxes uh, related to health, and uh, we definitely tax certain products that have impact on health, such as cigarettes, uh, alcohol, sugar, even in some jurisdictions. But this is different. Um, and I think, um, again, I, nobody's more pro-vaccine than I am. I have um, been very vocal in the media in favor of uh, the carrots, you know, incentives for vaccination, right. including lotteries and all the previous proposals. I've been also very supportive of uh, coercive measures like vaccine passports. But even I feel that this is going a step in a slightly risky direction. I mean, how best to describe this? Because, I mean, you know, the premier described it as almost like a health fee or a levy or a surcharge. And it doesn't feel that much different than than a fine. If there was a policy that said vaccines are mandatory and this is the fine you pay if you're not vaccinated, they're, they're basically the same thing, aren't they? 
You know, you're absolutely right uh, when you hesitate regarding how to describe this because the premiere indeed was very, very vague. There were no details given. We don't know if this is a flat fee or linked to your income on a sliding scale. Is this a one-time thing, a monthly thing? What is the actual amount? We have no details, which is why I felt when I listened to him that this was a very vague general uh, slightly threatening message to the Quebec uh, public um, because the Quebec healthcare system is under is very stretched right now and under threat. Already in Quebec, medical interventions and surgeries are being postponed. So the Quebec population feels already now, this is not just about what if ICU cannot accommodate you. Already now, people are not getting the care that they need because of uh, the pressure on the healthcare system. And so the vaccinated majority feels extremely frustrated and angry because the proportion of unvaccinated patients in the hospitals is much higher than the proportion in the population. So I understand why Premier Legault wanted to send this additional message, putting a lot of pressure on the unvaccinated by choice to go and do the right thing. But here's my concern. Um, We really uh, need to stick to our core principles of medical ethics that tell us that once you become a patient, it doesn't matter what brought you there. If you're a smoker, if you didn't wear your seatbelt, it doesn't matter. Once you're in the healthcare system and you have a medical need, everybody's treated equally. And I am concerned about vaccine status becoming uh, a criterion for deprioritizing people who need uh, care or ICU beds or other people being expected to pay for their own health care related to COVID because they chose not to get the vaccine. I do not want to see us crossing those lines and going that far again, because this this goes against core fundamental principles of medical ethics and what it means to provide medical care. And I, my concern is that this step, that this is a step in that direction, that it would increase the public acceptability of these more extreme measures that I have characterized as being dangerous. Well, it feels, you're right. I mean, there, there are politics involved. We shouldn't politicize the delivery of health care, should we? Uh, not only the delivery of health care, I'm hoping that we don't continue to politicize public health measures themselves. Yeah. Public health uh, is about exactly that, protecting the health of the public, the common good. And it has to be based, it must be based on evidence, data, numbers, lots of kinds of numbers, right? Epidemiological data, understanding how the, this specific variant is transmitted, what is it like? What are how the vaccines protect us from severe symptoms? There's a lot of types of data involved in this analysis, and also ethical principles regarding um, uh, necessity and proportionality and equity. But this entire analysis should be done rationally and in an informed way, and not a knee-jerk reaction to the majority, the vaccinated majority, feeling angry, tired, and frustrated. So I just want to see policies made. Uh, appropriately based on principles, scientific and ethical, uh, and not crossing lines when it's unnecessary. 
Right. And when it comes to the unvaccinated and, and maybe the premier is is, you know, peddling some stereotypes, which may be true. You know, those that uh, have no intention of getting vaccine, they reject the science of vaccination. I, I'm, I'm sure those those individuals exist. I think there are those who you know face different kinds of, of barriers or maybe have concerns that could be allayed uh, if we were to take the time to to listen to those concerns and answer those questions. Would it, would it be more helpful, I think, to better understand why people haven't been vaccinated, whether there's other ways of helping or convincing them? I believe so. I think, once again, you're absolutely right. We call them the unvaccinated by choice minority, but it's not a homogeneous population. There are the hardcore anti-vaxxers who reject science, Uh, who are um, circulating conspiracy theories, who did not vaccinate their children before the pandemic. And unfortunately, research shows us that there is almost nothing you can do to change their mind because it has become an ideological position and it's no longer about facts even. But then there's, I think, a bigger group within this minority of people who have concerns, and some of them are legitimate concerns. The vaccines have been developed very fast. The companies making the vaccines are making billions of dollars. Um, There are side effects, uh, rare and not very dangerous, but they exist. Uh, People hear a story about somebody who got the vaccine and had a reaction. Maybe the reaction is not even connected, but it scares them. So people have worries, and some of these worries are legitimate, and some of them can be um, answered or alleviated by information. So I think we must not stop the ongoing public health campaign, the circulation of scientific, well-founded information, uh, continue to incentivize and reduce barriers, as you said. Some people still face barriers of language, of geography, of education level. Uh, So we need to continue to reach out um, on the ground for certain communities who have historically been, um, you know, treated unfairly. Um, and suffering from structural injustice, we should really work with community leaders, again, on the ground. There's a lot that we can do. And at the same time, I agree, we need to increase pressure by maybe expanding the use of vaccine passports. Um, But this new measure, you know, potentially crosses a line that we may not want to cross at this time. Well, it certainly prompted the conversation, and and maybe it's important to have this conversation. At this point, obviously, as you say, there's a lot of details yet to be filled in here. Maybe the government will have some some, uh, change of heart on this. But what are you watching for or or looking to better understand, I guess, as this moves forward? First of all, um, is this going to be um, some sort of flat fee, one uh, fixed amount across the board? Or is this going to be a type of tax that is linked to your income? Because if it's a, um, an equal amount, it's flagrantly inequitable in the sense that $500 or $1,000 can be negligible for one family and a huge burden for another family. And we know that poor uh, families, populations have suffered the most throughout COVID, so it feels like a some sort of compounded inequity. So if it's implemented, I hope that it will at least be implemented as some sort of tax on a sliding scale. The second thing is, of course, what is the amount? Um, Because again, even if it's sliding scale, um, increasing the stress, the financial stress on the most vulnerable people in society who are already extremely stressed because of the pandemic might even have... uh, 
negative public health implications. It may may you know shoot us in the leg. So um, I'm I think a lot of the the devil is definitely in the details, and we know very little. And uh, Premier Legault said yesterday, I think that this will be debated in the National Assembly of Quebec. So I don't even think that the government knows yet how it's going to go about it. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Rovitsky, appreciate your input and your insight on this. Uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thank you. All the best. Uh, there you go. That is uh, Vardita Rovitsky, who's a professor of bioethics at the University of Montreal, also a senior lecturer at uh, the Harvard Medical School. So she's got some questions. She's got some concerns. And I think there's a lot of Canadians, probably a lot of Quebecers even, that have both questions and concerns. You've probably seen shortages uh, across the country. It's only going to get worse because of the fact that we're already in a trucker shortage. And it's going to be worse if the, the mandatory vaccination and rules at the border come into place. Well, that was Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole last night. He was talking about this uh, mandate that takes effect tomorrow to require that any truckers coming and going across the border be vaccinated. Those that aren't will have to take a pre-arrival test and will have to quarantine. So the concern is that uh, pressing ahead with this mandate is going to mean fewer truck drivers on the road, and that's going to exacerbate shortages on our store shelves. Conservatives have proposed some other measures, masking, testing, uh, making sure that truckers stay in their cabs if they're unvaccinated, these kinds of measures, uh, to at least keep those truckers on the road. Now, there's been some confusion this week because on Wednesday, the Canada Border Services Agency uh, suggested that Canadian truckers would be exempt from this policy, only to have the government clarify yesterday, no, that's not the case. So there, there's been some confusion on top of the debate as to whether we should be sticking to this deadline. Seemed like maybe we weren't. Turns out we are. So what are the implications of this? And are there other ways of at least trying to address the situation? Joining us for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Chris Nash, who is president of the Alberta Motor Transportation Association. Chris, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. Thanks for having me. So it's been a weird week, I guess, at least in terms of this confusion. Uh, your thoughts on, on how this has all been communicated and, and why we had this weird curveball thrown at us this week? Well, it's, it's you know, inevitable that they're working on the border vaccinations to make it simpler. But uh, with the extent or with the exemption now being uh, removed on January 15th for Canadian drivers and going or coming into Canada and January 22nd for the U.S. Uh, to put in their uh, standards as well. So the end of the day, vaccination is the direction they're going. You know, as an association, we support as the, the best way to uh, protect everyone from COVID-19. However, the challenge being in a fragile supply chain, um, we could lose 10 to 15 percent of our truckers uh, on the 15th that are not vaccinated and unable to move over the border. So, and just to be clear, so this is for truckers that are just crossing the border. So, any any trucks that are running routes that are within Canada, this this doesn't apply, then, correct? Absolutely, it's only the people that are crossing U.S. to Canada or Canada to U.S. But as you say, that that still represents a, a, a number of truckers. So, once this takes effect on Saturday, what does it mean then for any unvaccinated trucker who is expected to be delivering or transporting to or from the U.S.? Well, it's going to be the choice of whether or not they, they continue or become vaccinated to cross or, uh, as some of the confusion was, is how does a 
non-vaccinated trucker come back into Canada after the 15th, it's already dispatched down there. So those are the immediate challenges. But for, for the long term, you know, being able to reach the folks that are unvaccinated to be able to get them vaccinated and offer them the opportunity, supply chain's just not ready for the hit we'll take with the amount of people that won't be able to cross the border at this time. Yeah, so talk about how that translates down into, you know, the availability of product, what's on the store shelves, what are the consequences then of, of having those drivers not available? Well, definitely, when you look just Alberta alone, typically you'd see 800 trucks a day crossing um, across Canada, 30,000 trucks crossing a day, 51.7% of our GDP moves on the back of a truck. So when you start looking at that impact, it's a, uh, it's significant, uh, especially now when we have all the other challenges of the driver shortages. When you look at what happened with the BC highways, what happened with, you know, product even not being made and rushed to be there. It's coming to a point where carriers are going to have to choose who they can move for and, and be saying no, because they won't have the power to move it without the drivers. It was interesting, and I remember talking to you about it at the time. You know, we, when we first were rolling out vaccines, we wanted to make sure truckers were a priority. We had some really interesting, um, you know, projects underway where we had some clinics set up right near the border and border crossings, make it really convenient uh, for truckers to to get a vaccine. If we were moving toward this deadline, why did we abandon those kinds of initiatives? Well, I'm not sure it's abandoned. Just as recently, we've had our, our uh, vaccination bus that we had in places near Edmonton and Calgary to be able to reach the drivers to do it. But when you look at a driver, they're isolated the majority of the time. Um, you look at the uptake and contractions of COVID for the drivers was very low to none because really they spend their time in the truck. Um, they're not really interacting with the public, anything like that, other than their delivery, maybe fueling or getting food. Beyond that, they're spending most of their day in there. So to get the time to be able to reach these drivers, the, the risk part of it is maybe a little bit less in that case because they are isolated. Uh, the majority of the time they do their job. So is that to say then that even if we were to delay this deadline by a few weeks or a few months, that there probably are still going to be some some truckers that we're just not going to convince or we're not going to be able to get through to on this? Well, and I think that's across the board, never mind just our industry. However, you know, having that opportunity to take the time to reach as many as we can and then mandate this when it won't be as much of an impact to the supply chain. But again, the, the, the challenge we have is we're already looking potentially into next year to be short 40,000 drivers across Canada, which is critical. So having this impact at this time with maybe a little bit lower risk, but an opportunity to grow it to that, we might be forcing some people out of the industry before they need to. So what could we be doing right now instead? What, what are some reasonable alternatives that maybe at least address some of these concerns, but, but keep drivers on the road? Well, again, it's just making sure that we're taking every extra step that we can to make sure that the drivers and the public are safe with this. And, you know, right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, the adaptation that the drivers and the, uh, the industry has taken to not handle the same piece of paper, not be, you know, doing the things they typically did before. Our industry's adapted to everything even before COVID of, hey, they're not open, you got to stay here a weekend, to, hey, this road is gone, you got to find another way, to, hey, how do we load this on there and get the product to an awkward place? That's what our industry does. The entrepreneurial spirit in the, and the part of it there similarly to this we've found ways to work with a little to no um, contraction for drivers that 
we do, again, we support the vaccination. It is the way to get out of this, this trouble we're in with COVID-19. However, mm-hmm. grand scheme of things to keep the supply chain moving, we need to look at this being extended so that we can, uh, we can reach the drivers and not have this impact. Yeah, and obviously the clock is ticking. I mean, even if we manage to navigate the next few weeks uh, with relatively few disruptions, I, I think some disruptions are unavoidable. You, you spoke about, you know, the larger picture that we just don't have enough drivers. And that, that's going to be a challenge, even if we start to get on the right side of this pandemic. What do you think we need to do bigger picture to ensure that, that we have those drivers, that, to ensure that, that that stuff keeps moving? Well, that's that's been a lot of what we worked on even prior to, you know, the shortage was here before COVID, but being, as you pointed out, exacerbated. But our, our yeah. challenge is now to create those career paths to be able to come into the industry. You know, we have mandatory entry-level training that has come in. Obviously, there's a cost involved. And maybe at the end of Mount, you're not really employable at that point. You have a license. It's building that bridge between license and employability. You know, when we look at insurance rates, when we look at all that, it's all about risk. You've got to remember you could be pulling 88,000 pounds of freight down a road with your family and my family. You want to make sure it's safe out there for everyone. But that training in between that we do in industry from point of hire to independent operation costs the industry 30 to $50 million a year just to train drivers. So that that challenge we have of getting people with credentials on their resume to be able to get from application to independent employment safely in a shorter amount of time is our challenge because you take everyone back to the beginning, 20 years, two-day driver. So getting that career path and the credentials to the industry to show that it it is a good career. It's not, uh, you know, there's a lot of stigma out there of the industry, but it is a good career path. It is a good paying job. It's not what it used to be. The technology, the the work-life balance, the things that companies are working towards, it's a good career but we need to work to create that and get the word out and show the pathways to be able to do it. We've seen in Alberta alone, 4,600 plus drivers from 2019 to 2020 class one drivers have left the industry. All of those under the age of 55, and we have an average age in our industry of 47, which is you know higher than most, uh, most career paths that you can be out or other industries you're in. Um, so it's just getting those pathways and getting people educated and safely on the road for our carriers. Yeah, you know, the other thing, too, and I mean, it's it's not unique to trucking right now, but um, there, there's just a lot of illness out there. There's, you know, so much uh, virus out there. A lot of industries are dealing with worker shortages just because people are homesick. Are, are you hearing anything even anecdotally or I don't know if you have any stats? I mean, what, what are we seeing in terms of how that's impacting uh, the trucking industry? Do you know? We don't have the specific stats, but the common message that we're getting is we're not seeing the uptake in the drivers. We're seeing it very, very low. And again, that's that's due to the isolation portion of what we do. Yeah. Which makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, hopefully that uh, continues to hold. And I guess we'll see what gets resolved on this uh, mandate. In the meantime, the Alberta Motor Transport Association uh, website, it's amta.ca. Chris, uh, always good hearing from you. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it, Rob. Take care. All the best. Uh, That is Chris Nash, uh, president of the Alberta Motor Transport uh, Association, AMTA.ca. So uh, their concerns with this mandate, uh, the impact that's going to have, arguing that there are other ways of of addressing these concerns and that, you know, to recognize the the nature of of the job and not to discourage people from it. But there is a a solitary aspect uh, to the job. Which, as you know, we navigate the situation right now, as he said, maybe we're, we're seeing fewer instances of illness among truckers just given the nature of the job. 
which does maybe undercut some of the government's urgency in, in pushing this through for tomorrow. If you start connecting the dots, Mr. Chair, it becomes increasingly concerning that government is seemingly using this pandemic as a means and a cause for massive overreach into the privacy rights of Canadians. It's Conservative MP John Brassard. We spoke to him the other day uh, talking about the Public Health Agency of Canada and its admission that they access the cell phone location data of millions of Canadians. The Commons Ethics Committee is holding an emergency meeting uh, to discuss all of this. The House of Commons is not sitting right now. Uh, so the Public Health Agency of Canada, again, belatedly acknowledged this program. I don't know if we've got the full story of how it all came about. There seemed to be uh, a false suggestion that the Public Health Agency of Canada had reached out to the Office of the Privacy Commissioner for some guidance on this. The Privacy Commissioner's office says that didn't happen. So why was this data collected? How was it used? How protected was it? This was ostensibly de-identified information. So even if they were tracking the location of your cell phone, they wouldn't necessarily know it was your cell phone. But how easily could it be re-identified? Who else might have had access to it? And do we need further safeguards when it comes to how this kind of information is handled by government agencies? So we'll see what comes out of this uh, ethics committee uh, meeting and these hearings and whether there is subsequent investigation from Canada's privacy commissioner into all of this. But what does it tell us about the state of our privacy laws in this country, whether those need to be changed or updated. Uh, joining us uh, for some thoughts, someone who's been watching all of this very closely, Christopher Parsons, joining us this afternoon, senior researcher at uh, the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab. Christopher, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so what questions does the, this all raise in, in your mind? What we've learned about this case, what we still need to know? So I think to begin with, uh, what's gone on demonstrates that there is an ongoing need to reform Canada's privacy legislation. So, you know, I don't think the PHAC or, or the government of Canada was collecting this for nefarious purposes. I think all of us remember the beginning of the pandemic, nothing of now, and we all wanted to end. And I think that's why the data was collected. Nonetheless, the fact that it was collected um, by private companies and then disclosed to the government and comes as a shock to Canadians, reveals that there just isn't enough information that is presented to Canadians about how their information is collected by private companies, nor how that information, after it's been aggregated and de-anonymized, has subsequently shared to other organizations, including the federal government of Canada. Right. And I mean, you know, I think we're, we're fortunate that this was reported on. I mean, it was basically the media that brought this to light in the first place. Uh, and maybe that's the other side of this. I mean, if, if the story hadn't leaked out to the media, would, would Canadians have ever known about this? It doesn't seem like the Public Health Agency of Canada was forthcoming about this. So in a report that the Citizen Lab published last year, one of the things that we noted uh, is that we were only last year starting to understand the ways that personal information aggregated, non-aggregated, identified, non-identified, had been collected and was being collected by governments to combat the pandemic. And so I think we're finally at the stage now where we're starting to understand what has been done in the effort to fight the pandemic. And it's revealing um, the state of our privacy laws and also revealing that, you know, I think most of us understand at the, the outset of the pandemic, everyone was scrambling. 
Well, you know, we're almost two years through the pandemic now. And while, yes, we're scrambling, we shouldn't be scrambling in the same way. It shouldn't take the media to reveal this, although, you know, God bless them for doing that. Really, this should be something that was transparent, transparently communicated by TELUS, um, who was involved in this uh, program, as well as by the Public Health Agency of Canada. And, and the fact that they didn't and weren't required to in an open, transparent, clear way that was understandable to Canadians uh, reveals that we need to update our laws. It's an interesting point because the Public Health Agency of Canada contracted TELUS to gather this information. Uh, TELUS has this information because obviously then the, these are, are TELUS customers or those using TELUS infrastructure. Does that suggest then what, what you just pointed to is that there was an obligation on TELUS to inform its users or its customers that were supplying this information to Public Health Agency of Canada and, and here's why and here's what it means? So I would argue there was a normative requirement they do that. But as it stands now, because of the nature of the information that was presented, there wasn't a corresponding legal requirement that they do so. Something that the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, as well as other privacy advocates and data protection authorities around the world have called for, is the move towards something called just-in-time notification. And so this means that rather than, you know, agreeing to disclose all sorts of information when you sign up for your cell phone with, you know, the multiple pages of legalese that, you know, a trained lawyer can't figure out, when and if your personal information is going to be mobilized by a company such as TELUS or someone else, they have to notify you at the time of user disclosure. And so I think uh, in any updates to privacy law, either that that applies to the federal government or that that applies to federally regulated companies, we need to have that kind of in-time um, notification process so that Canadians can understand how their data is being used and more, eff- more uh, effectively say, I agree, I disagree, or at the bare minimum, I want to know more. Is that all to say, though, that at least as it appears right now, that both the Public Health Agency of Canada and TELUS followed the law as it is currently written? So obviously there's uh, a great deal of information coming out, so I'll, I'll hesitate to pass judgment um, also uh, not formally trained as a lawyer but but looking at the law uh, both that applies to the federal government and it applies to federally regulated companies um, it doesn't appear to me at first glance that the law has been broken and that in fact demonstrates part of the issue is routinely we see Canadians um, being sort of surprised and concerned and a little bit upset about how their data is being repurposed And there's a real risk when the law permits either private or public agencies to do something, even though it's outside of the normative expectations of citizens. And so one of the things that I hope emerges from this current controversy is, A, reforms to privacy law, but also a reformation of privacy law that is closer to what Canadians think should be done. I think that if Mm -hmm. PHAC and TELUS um, and, and other organizations at the outset of the pandemic, had contacted Canadians and been pretty public about what they were doing, most Canadians, maybe not all, of course, but many Canadians were like, okay, if this is going to be essential to like figuring out how to stop COVID, let's get, out, let's get on board. But because they're, you know, we're realizing what's gone on years after the fact or a year and change after the fact, there's a controversy. And this is exactly the, the wrong way of dealing with privacy issues. It should be addressed up front. It should be addressed transparently. And there should be accountability measures put in place. I mean, part of the reason I ask the question, though, I mean, if if government agencies or private companies are not following the law right now or can get away with violating the law right now, that even if we make the law better and stronger, d- does it necessarily address the problem? 
So I think one of the, the key questions is what is the problem right now? So my understanding based on you know publicly available sourcing and, and communications that have some people in government has been that you know they, they don't have any information about Chris Parsons in particular. They don't know exactly how I've moved or how you've moved or something like that. They were right. collecting aggregated, de-identified information to get sort of broad level understandings of how Canadians were moving over the course of the pandemic. So the first question is, is that efficacious? Is it appropriate? Was it, was it useful? And then we get to the other question of under what terms and conditions should the government be able to collect this data? I think in the case of the pandemic, many people might say, okay, well, I don't really agree with sort of how it seems like it was sneaky, but, you know, they were trying to do the right thing. But what happens when we move to other policy issues, immigration policy, um, criminal policy? I mean, you can imagine any number of other areas that are uh, on a daily basis more controversial. And I think what this issue showcases is that the federal government of Canada can collect a large volume of data. And as Canadians, we need to ask, under what conditions can and should government access this? It obviously needs data to, to do policies that both keep us safe and facilitate uh, the public good. But what are the limits? What are the barriers? What are the borders? And what accountability mechanisms can, we put, can be put in place to ensure that, as you mentioned, there isn't a situation where the law happens to be broken? And I, I guess maybe that's a silver lining here, given the, the scope of this, uh, the, the now I think a lot of the, the attention around this story, uh, that maybe coming out of this, we, we do finally get some change that maybe otherwise might not have occurred. I think it's useful to, to look at what the federal government was doing in the last parliament. And in fact, they had introduced uh, privacy reforms that would affect uh, federally regulated commercial entities. And in fact, in that legislation, exactly what has gone on um, with PHAC and, and TELUS would have been permitted under the law. So I think that what, it, what, this gives, what this situation gives us an opportunity to do is actually say, is this something, is this a situation where we're okay with PHAC obtaining information from private vendors or not? And, you know, people may come out on that in different ways, which is fine. But at least when this parliament takes up privacy legislation, we're going to have a very firm example that we can use what should happen, what laws should be reformed, how they should be reformed, and the obvious implications of such reform. Indeed. Well, we'll see what comes of all of this. Appreciate your perspective and insight. Christopher, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you so much. All the best. Uh, that is Christopher Parsons, as mentioned, uh, senior researcher at Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto, among um, School of Global Affairs. So a lot of questions still about uh, this arrangement. And so, yes, this involves the Public Health Agency of Canada, also involves TELUS, that they contracted to gather this information. So how was it being used to had access to it? How protected was this information? Those are all relevant questions. But even just that, that idea of disclosure, do companies have an obligation that they've entered into this contract with a government agency? They're supplying this information to the government of Canada? to say to their customers or their users, this is what's going on. This is the information we're sharing. This is how it's being conveyed. This is what the government's going to be able to deduce or not deduce from the information we provide them. That obviously didn't happen here. All right, welcome back. Look, in a society that allows freedom of expression, in a society that is truly democratic, where you're not obligated to support a particular party, uh, you are, should be free to express your displeasure, your disdain even, uh, for elected political leaders. 
that you're not going to end up in jail uh, for speaking out against the prime minister or the premier, or at least you shouldn't. However, in society, we, we do kind of frown, I guess, on, on certain language, certain words. Uh, there are words that, as a broadcaster on the public airwaves, I'm not permitted to say. But what about your own home? An interesting story out of Port Colburn, Ontario. A homeowner there had put a flag on the side of her home. This was after the uh, September federal election, clearly not happy with the outcome. It's a very basic black flag with white letters and a red maple leaf. So just to spell it out for you, uh, so you can visualize or at least understand what was on this flag. F, maple leaf, CK, Trudeau. I think the message is pretty clear. This person doesn't like Justin Trudeau and is conveying that through this flag. What makes this a story is that the uh, town of, or the city, I guess, of Port Colbert, Ontario, initially told the homeowner to take the flag down. That's when the Canadian Constitution Foundation got involved. It appears as though this has now been resolved. So joining us for the latest is Christine Van Gein, who is litigation director with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. The CCF.ca is their website. Christine, good to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. So I remember speaking with you some weeks ago about this case, what what draw, drew your organization to get involved. So before we talk about the resolution, give us a bit more of the background here. Yeah, so I learned about this case actually the same way that the resident of the house learned about it, which was that it was reported in local media. So when when it was it was published in a Niagara newspaper. And at that point, the resident of the house, her name's Melissa, hadn't even been contacted by the town yet. So she woke up one morning and was shocked to see a picture of her house and her flag in the newspaper uh, saying that the town had ordered her to take it down. So obviously she was pretty upset. And uh, I, I read the I read the same article. I got in my car and I drove out to Port Coburn to try and find uh, find the house. Because I, I mm-hmm. support her right to, to fly whatever flag she wants on her property. That's a, a really precious freedom that we can criticize our political mm-hmm. leaders using whatever words we choose. And we can criticize any of our political leaders. And it's a freedom that a lot of people around the world don't have. So I support her right to fly it. And I wanted to let her know that. So once she did get that notice from the town, she eventually did get the order. Uh, we we set wheels in motion. Um, we let the, the town know that she was going to be represented by lawyers, that she was working with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. We, uh, <clears throat> we, we sent a notice of application for judicial review. And uh, ultimately, the town backed down. I think it was their, I, I expect that it was their advice from their town lawyer that they could not enforce this, this order, that the law itself had, had some question to, constitutional flaws in it, and that they were, they were opening themselves up to some big problems if they tried to get Melissa to take her Jeff flag down. Yeah, and I remember this aspect of the case because it was, it was curious reasoning from, from the city as to why the flag needed to be removed. What was their basis initially for, for claiming that or arguing that? So I think the town, you know, this happens with, with small municipalities is that there's a, people sometimes just don't know what they're doing. So the order was on the basis that residential buildings may not display signs that are not approved by the town. So that was what the order 
actually was for, but then they made reference in it to the the vulgarity, like the vulgar language of the the, the flag. I mean, we're being a little cute, but there was technically not even any vulgar language. But even if there was, you were still entitled to curse on your own property if you would like to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's perhaps not the language I would use, and I would certainly not not let my children use. But, you know, that's that's something that you have a right to do. This is a free country. You can curse if you would like to. Um, you know, you mentioned yourself as a broadcaster. Broadcasters are simply just subject to different regulations. But, yeah. you know, I, there is swearing is still even permitted on television if you have the right license for it. So um, the idea that she had to take it down because it had a curse word is kind of a, a moral judgment. It's not something that the town even is empowered to enforce under their bylaws. So they were trying to use a different bylaw, one related to signs. And this actually wasn't even a sign, it's a flag. So there was a whole mess of um, bylaws that the the town was trying to use, and it frankly didn't work. So her flag is still flying. Well, and that's probably the right outcome here, even if if people might not agree with the the method in which she's conveying a political opinion. I I suppose if we want to get down to, to technicalities here, I mean, Technically, the flag doesn't actually feature an obscene word. Uh, you know, it's it's cleverly designed, I guess, in that sense. It'd be kind of like if I were to come on the radio and say something is BS. I mean, I think everybody knows what that stands for. And if I were to say <laughs> full two words, I guess, you know, I could be in some trouble. But that's kind of what they're doing with the flag here, isn't it? Yeah, but the, even if she wanted to use the word that is being suggested, she's still within her rights to do it. Um, and, sure, and I, event, I think that's fair, but I mean, it should be noted that technically she's not doing that. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Technically, she's not. And, yeah. you know, it, 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 she, it can't be emphasized enough that this is political speech, right? This is criticism of a political leader. And in Canada, we are entitled to criticize our political leaders using whatever words we want. We can curse at our political leaders. And that is something that would, in many, many countries around the world, land you in jail. It could land your family in jail. And it's a precious freedom that so many people don't have, and we really need to protect it. So that's why I wanted to get involved in this case, to show just how important this principle is, and to send a message to other municipalities who might be considering doing something similar. Because, frankly, it's not a flag that's uncommon. I've seen it in other places. I've seen it on bumper stickers as well. And we don't want the government telling us that we cannot criticize our political leaders. And I have to say, I would have taken this case no matter who Melissa was criticizing. This isn't about Trudeau. I think that, I mean, basically every political leader we have in this country right now is probably worthy of some pretty serious criticism. So um, Mm. this isn't a partisan issue for me at all. This is a freedom of speech issue. Yeah, I I think it is. So, I mean, the the right decision emerged from all of this, but this is an unfortunate way of having to resolve these kinds of situations. I mean, it clearly never should have come up in the first place. No, no Canadian should have to threaten to go to court in order to use the constitutional freedoms that they have. And I think if Melissa hadn't been contacted by by me, had the Canadian Constitution Foundation hire a lawyer for her, she might have been scared into just silence, right? And that's a real shame because she she does have a right to to display that sign. And I think the penalty that the town was threatening her with, I think it was up to twenty thousand dollars in fine. Wow, really? And 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 that 
I mean, a lot of people would be scared by that. And I'm lucky that I was able to reach her before things got got to that and that we were mm-hmm. able to, to help her and keep that flag up. All right. Well, I guess all's well that ends well, but, uh, you know, an important uh, principle, I think, in, in all of this. More at theccf.ca. Christine, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really do appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. All the best. Uh, Christine Van Gein, Litigation Director with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. So never did have to go to court, but it, it did require at least that intervention and the threat of going to court to convince the city to back down. It was a pretty flimsy basis in the first place to order the woman in this case to take down this flag. Again, the flag is pretty simple. It's a black flag, two words. The second word is Trudeau. The first word is, as it reads on the flag, F, Maple Leaf, CK. So the flag is black, the letters are white, the Maple Leaf is red. So it certainly implies a profane word. It technically doesn't actually say the profane word. But it's obviously somebody voicing their displeasure of, in this case, the prime minister, which in a free country we should be free to do. It wouldn't be much different, I don't think, than showing up at a rally, a Trudeau rally or a Jason Kenney rally, and shouting the F words. F you, Jason. F you, Justin. It's impolite, maybe not appropriate. Maybe better ways, more productive ways or constructive ways of expressing yourself, but it shouldn't be illegal. So I think the right decision was made here, whether that's the kind of flag that people should fly in their home. I mean, not one that I would fly regardless of the politician, but it's her house. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.